we are living by the stories that we tell ourselves. And so you have to really understand whether the stories that you're telling are true and have application in your life or are a reflection of time gone by. Welcome back to the Whole Mamas Podcast. We're here to give you tools, resources, and evidence-based information so you can make the best decisions for yourself and your family. Whether you're trying to conceive or navigating life with a toddler or a teenager, we've got you covered. I'm Stephanie Grinke, Registered Dietitian and Program Manager for Whole Mamas Club. I'm also the co-creator of Whole Mamas Pregnancy Program and Upcoming Postpartum Program. And my co-host is Dr. Ilana Rommel, Pediatric Naturopathic Doctor and creator of Med School for Moms, an online resource where she teaches moms how to safely be a doctor mom. Today, I'm excited to bring Dave Hollis, the CEO of The Hollis Company, on the show to share parenting tips from a dad's perspective, including how he and his wife, Rachel Hollis, navigated the ups and downs of adoption. We discuss how to get your partner on board with self-development, the many ways fatherhood shifted his identity, tips he has for new dads, lessons he learned along the way, and how you can learn from his mistakes. Many of these stories and other tools can be found in his new book, Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. All right, let's welcome Dave to the show. Dave, welcome to the Whole Mamas podcast. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me here. I am excited to be here. Yeah, well, I love and respect you and Rachel so much. I told you before we started talking today that my kids even know who you are because I always have the morning show in the background. So they sing along to your tune with me. And, you know, I ordered your book the second that I heard it was coming out because I wanted to get the bonuses and I just wanted to know what life was like from your perspective. I really relate to you on so many levels and I relate to Rachel on other levels. So for those of you who aren't like me and didn't order it the second that it came out or you don't have it in your Amazon cart right now. The book is called Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. And I was lucky enough to receive an advanced copy that I read cover to cover. And I can't wait to share some of the stories that you talked about in the book with our audience today. But before we start, we always like to share a couple of things on what we do to nourish ourselves, And so we want to hear from you, Dave, how you nourish yourself today. It could be as small as doing a mini dance party to Trick Daddy's Let's Go. (laughs) Or as large as running 13 miles with Rachel. So what's on tap for you today? Well, I started my day in my garage gym. And this is, it is in fact launch day. We're recording this on the day that the book actually comes out. It is surprisingly more emotional than I was thinking it might be to birth this book. And so in what for me has become this amazing thing in pushing myself physically so that I can remind myself how much I can do emotionally or mentally. I had to get out and do, it was leg day today. So in a weird Mm. way, nourishing myself was like just getting a sweat worked up for 45 minutes of me pushing myself pretty hard so that no matter what emotions come my way on this very exciting and somewhat emotional book launch day, I'm ready to go handle whatever comes. Yeah, and you are really about your morning routine. Both you and Rachel have a set morning routine that even on launch day where you could totally call it in or phone it in and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go do X, Y, or Z. It's so important to you. And so a routine that you probably can't even imagine not doing it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I actually can imagine not doing it because I don't <laughs> necessarily love um, – wait, I don't love waking up early. I don't even love sometimes getting out into the gym. But what I love even less than that is – the kind of person I can become in the absence of my routines. And so I just have to be robotic, methodical about 
the routine that best sets me up for the kind of day I want to have, that best sets me up for the kind of husband I'd like to be or the kind of father or leader I want to be. And that starts, for me, my morning routine starts at 9 p.m. the night before when I have to be in bed asleep. And then every single thing that happens during my morning, it's, it's, it's about unlocking this better version, best version of myself to go do all the things I want to try and do. Yeah. And and that's what you talk a lot about in your book is how you really stepped into this new version of Dave and how you kind of healed from some of past addictions that you had and, and ways of being that you weren't really proud of. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners have heard or read about read Rachel's books, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. So if they're familiar with her level of vulnerability when it comes to sharing things that happened in her life that really changed who she is today. So what made you decide to step into writing a book and sharing everything that has happened in your life, even the really intimate parts. Yeah. It, well, interestingly, it actually started with my first having Girl Wash Your Face handed to me when it was still printed out on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper with a binder clip. And in reading it, I panicked. I was mortified that she had decided to be as vulnerable as she was being. And in my panic, tried my best to convince her to not release the book. I, mm -hmm. I just was certain that her vulnerability was a liability for what she was trying to build. We weren't yet working together. I was really stuck at the time anyway, and the idea of showcasing some of the things that I wasn't necessarily proud of, chapter five, some details <laughs> around our intimacy. Like it just felt like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? No, we shouldn't. You shouldn't. This is not a good idea. And then the book came out. Like luckily she wouldn't let me or anyone tell her what she knew the audience might respond best to. And that was her vulnerability affording them the opportunity to see themselves in her stories. And in having that like, oh, I'm not alone wow, there are other people who feel this thing. And here are the set of tools that she applied to get out of her own way in those instances where she was believing lies that were keeping her stuck. They now had a trail of breadcrumbs to make progress in their own life. And so it was really in realizing how wrong I was about vulnerability, not in fact being a liability, but a superpower, that I started to ask a set of questions around what it might mean for me to also storytell but I wanted to be able to do something that was obviously different than what she'd done. And where I realized there were differences is just in our wiring, because I am very much, as the title of the book suggests, a skeptic to even things like the book that I have produced. The idea of like a nonfiction personal development book was something that I just could never have imagined picking up. I was and am recovering still from having been a fixed mindset person for most of my life to her having always been so growth oriented. And I struggle with motivation. I'm truly someone who is more externally motivated to this like furnace that's burning inside of her belly every single morning when she wakes up. And so I had to ask, like, is there a way that from having come into and out of a season of being stuck that I might be able to story tell in the same kind of way that she did? a series of things that I believed that kept me in my way in a way that the audience may see themselves in those stories. And if I were able to give some practical advice on how I, in uncovering the lie that I was believing and making it now unbelievable, maybe afford someone else the chance to stay out of their own way. And here we are. Now, it, by the way, 
ended up being the hardest thing I have ever done, ever, ever done, because telling really, really honest truths about things you carry shame for or are embarrassed about is hard until you realize, man, struggle is universal. And the things that I have gone through are 100% things that will be relatable to every single human who's listening to this podcast. No, I'm wondering, you were talking about two different two different reactions to her writing that book. One was a fear of protecting her privacy, right? With her sharing all these stories. And then there was another part that was kind of like an ego, like, oh my gosh, I don't want these stories to be out about me. And I think that's really common when it comes to our partners is, you know, especially, you know, typically the male partner is wanting to be that protector. So how much of that do you think was like, you just really wanted to protect her or how much of it was like, oh gosh, now everybody's going to know this about me. I'd say it was truly now in hindsight, 75% about ego and vanity and 25% about my worry of her ability to handle the pressure of having fully exposed herself and her struggles to the world. Uh, ego is, man, ego is a hard thing. And, and in a weird way, I had assigned as a role in our relationship this idea of being a protector for her. Uh, and, and, and one of the lies in the book is this idea that it's my job to keep them from experiencing problems, whether them is Rachel, my kids, people I love. And in fact, so many of the most beautiful things that have come to show how strong we can be, how much faith we can have, how much resilience we possess has come when I have resisted or frankly been kept from actually keeping problems from happening. And so it, man, it just, it took a lot of work and time where there were some fantastic life experiences that reframed the way I thought about vulnerability, but also problems or even having to endure whatever might come from the uncontrollability of life um, to see how important it is to step into these spaces that make you uncomfortable, that challenge the way that you like even think about control. Yeah. And I think, I feel like women are starting to be more comfortable with that vulnerability. I feel like for men, it's, it's harder to really reach out and kind of put the hand up in the air and say, I need help or I'm struggling with this. And that's why I think your book is so special is because uh, anybody can pick it up, uh, whatever gender and relate to some aspect of your book. Um, but I feel like there really isn't a whole lot of books out there that maybe uh, a man can relate to. And one of the things that we talk about a lot, especially as it comes to the transition to parenthood is, you know, uh, there's a lot more support now for moms in the postpartum period of that huge transition to motherhood and what it's like. And there's camaraderie there, but I'm so super passionate about perinatal mental health for both partners. And I feel like there is just this huge missing piece when it comes to that transition to fatherhood and all the support that's needed and the vulnerability that you are experiencing. And, you know, you want to protect, but you're also going through this major transition. So can you kind of talk about that? Like, what was it like for you to shift into your new role as a parent? Well, no one can prepare you for what you are transitioning into. That's the first thing. And yeah. as much as there were so many gifts afforded to me by parents who were great parents. I really struggled with how to get to a place where I could honor the way that they parented and not have to take every single thing that they did and think that it had to apply inside of the life that we were creating for ourselves. And man, I had a hard time with that because I felt in some ways like I was betraying the 
blessing that was the way that they raised me. Like I am who I am in large part because of having been raised by them the way that they raised me. And yet the way that they raised me, there are parts of how they did that don't have application in our life now. And that's an okay thing. And man, I stumbled through that at the beginning. Like I brought some of the traditional uh, gender roles of who does what when kids come into your family uh, because it was the way that was modeled for me inside of what was a different way of approaching life. And I I can say now, man, the mistake that we made was not having as honest conversations up front about what our actual expectations were for who does what when it comes to kids prior to having them and just assumed some roles that were a reflection of our family of origin and not necessarily our personal or relational values. And so, um, you stumble through it, right? We now have four kids, which is like a thousand kids. We have so many kids. Um, and so our ability to appreciate with the benefit of time and the perspective that comes in adding more humans to your home, man, we're like such different parents in like a way that blesses these kids for the way that we've grown into giving ourselves grace and being more intentional with each of them individually. I mean, one of the, one of the things I think that I came into parenting thinking that I now have such clarity was a bad way to think was that uh, my dad just parented each of us four kids. I was the oldest of four. Um, and in, in, in that way that my job was to parent my kids in a constant way. And I can see now, man, my four kids are just about the four most different human beings walking the planet and they live in our house. They are raised by the same two people and they're just wired differently. And so the way for me to show up best as a dad is not to apply a one-size-fits-all, here's how I dad all of you. No, no, no. I have to understand their love language, and, you know, I, it may be too early for, like, an Enneagram kind of a thing, but, like, understanding their wiring is one thing. Understanding their personal passions is a, is a really important thing. Like, the way that I connect most with each of my individual kids is meeting them in a space where their passion comes alive. So my oldest is into theater, that's where I meet him. My middle son is into baseball. That's where I meet him. My youngest son is an outdoorsman scout. That's where I meet him. Noah's a monster. I mean, she just turned three. She's crazy. I meet her in crazy, right? <laughs> but finding a way to be the kind of dad that each of them individually needs, that's something that I understand now at 45 that I didn't understand at 27. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book, you're just mentioning the role or the, the role identity of like who does what. And you mentioned something in the book and I've heard you talk about it in other places. And I'm like, this is brilliant. Why aren't people talking about this is when it comes to sleep and the value assessment that you put on sleep. And so I think at the time you were working and Rachel was at home with however many babies. And there was a conversation about, well, I actually need more sleep because I'm working outside of the house and I'm that parent. And later on, you realize just how flawed that thinking was. Yeah. So I would love to get into a discussion about that because I feel like there's so many moms that are still in that position where one of their, their partners working and they feel like their time isn't as valuable or they don't need as much sleep because they're just working out of the house. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it ends up being this very interesting, and now I can see totally flawed connection I made between provision and like that whole value assessment, right? Like earning in the earliest parts of our relationship was something that unconsciously, subconsciously, I'd like, I just, I, it has to be that, please, so that I can still sleep at night. But like I was showing up in a way that said, hey, because I earn money in this relationship, 
as you are taking time to give birth to and take care of this first child of ours, I will put more value on me getting a good night of sleep over you getting a good night of sleep because of that earning, which again, I now in the the perspective that comes from time can see, wait a second, my job, like the job that I can't even remember what it was now, the job that had very little impact on almost anything, you know, 13 years later um, is nothing compared to keeping our first human being alive. And the idea that the way that I might value sleep as being more a thing I need versus the thing that the person who is actually um, keeping this person alive, but also working, right? Like in some crazy way I had concocted that I was working and she was not working, which is idiocy. I, I like, it, like I'm embarrassed to even say it out loud, but at 28 years old, as we had our first child, my brain, again, was computing, earning money and leaving the home, putting on a shirt that had buttons as being work and staying home, being with a child as something that was not necessarily like on par with. And in the book, I tell the story of, you know, like I'm out of town and there is a moment where my commitment to trying to do this work uh, well is something that comes to a head when she's like, it's me or this job. Like you need to stop being on the road. You need to stop thinking about sleeping in the guest room so you can get your beauty rest. Like you've seen me, the beauty rest didn't work anyway, but it was truly embarrassing. It's embarrassing, you know, for me now. I don't know how to like, maybe hopefully, right. Having these kind of conversations will have people in their marriage, having a conversation about how they value each of the roles that they will play once the baby comes into this world in a way that, frankly, we just didn't as well as we could. have. No, and I, I really appreciate you saying that because I know we all like we all are doing our best in the time and we all have our our thinking like it makes sense to us in the time. But I'm curious, you know, just be, to be able to give somebody advice that's going through it. So let's say we have a mom that's listening and she's like, yes, like I'm in this situation where my time isn't being valued and I'm the one that's not getting any sleep at night. How can we be a team and like huddle over this? Like how can they start that conversation? So it feels like a win-win for both sides. One of the things when I think about, man, how do you construct a life that is a reflection of your values? Yeah, Front loading is a thing that I, I talk about in the book because of the benefit of getting ahead of what your life will throw your way, of what your needs will be, of the things that each of you as individuals need to do to take care of your health. And that's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health, the things that you may need in terms of help, the things that you may need in terms of fuel, the things that you may need in terms of self-care. All of those things are conversations that in real time sometimes can create an emotional reaction because of what feels like a real-time assessment of one person's time being more valuable than another when you say, can you pick up the kids or can you grab dinner or can you, instead of the way that we're trying to do it on an every week basis, on Sunday nights, if we can spend an hour of time identifying every single thing that our week will throw our way, including how we intend to eat, including where we intend to work out or uh, move our body, intend, including where self-care or alone time is important, including where our date night sits. So if, if I'm a new mama and I am walking into this season or I'm you know just about to become a new mama, getting into a habit of front-loading where you can, in an objective setting that's removed from some of the emotion of that real-time conversation, 
represent what your needs are, have your partner represent what their needs are, and how you have some things that you'd hope to have happen to position you to best show up for the relationship, take care of the humans, whatever it might be. Um, in that environment, usually there's an ability for people to plan out how to be more intentional in activating the things that will help them not just su survive, but like thrive inside of that time. So if you're having that conversation the week ahead, identifying who's getting up for feedings, identifying how many hours of consecutive sleep are required for you to be a contributor and negotiating in that objectivity, how you're going to share the load, right? I have 100% come to believe that my responsibility in raising this, these children is 100%. It is not 50-50, right? Rachel has 100% responsibility. I have 100% responsibility. The week that we have sometimes will compromise our ability to be 100% available to the needs of the family. And so us front-loading our week to recognize, hey, this is what life's throwing our way. If there's an 1120 performance of Moana in the cafeteria, I can look at both of our calendars. She can look at both of our calendars and we can decide which of us is more available and in that objective setting on a Sunday night, make a decision for Thursday that doesn't on Thursday morning have one of us stepping in it and saying, can you go take care of the kids? Because that inadvertent assessment of whose time is more valuable that morning is a trigger that emotionally just derails you if you let it. I think that's such a good point. And also it takes the assumption that one partner is always going to do it. So for example, in our relationship, it's like I'm and we're working on this right now, but I'm usually the one that is taking care of the kids stuff. Right. And so sometimes my husband doesn't even know about that Moana showing in the cafeteria because I just take it on. But if you have that meeting on a Sunday and you talk about it, then it gives them the opportunity to participate. Whereas you might have just assumed like, well, they don't want to. So it's on me. Right. Yeah. Really outlines. I think that's brilliant. What it's provided too is there are certain things in us being 100% responsible for our home and our kids and all of the things it's identified in these conversations, the things that we actually like to do and the things that we actually don't like to do. And so there are mm -hmm. some times you're like, you know what? I don't mind the dishes. You know what? I, I am fine to do it. Or I don't mind bedtime as much as like, she may be more the person who's comfortable getting them up and going in the morning. And so as, as long as we can leave the conversation feeling like, you know what, each of us has represented our perspective. We found ways to create something of balance relative to the week that sits ahead. We walk into the week having pro like pre-programmed or at least gotten a little bit of a map for how we're going to navigate through everything. Hey mama, Stephanie here. Are you overwhelmed with all the information out there regarding pregnancy and prenatal health? We get it. So I want to take a minute to share about our whole mama's pregnancy program. Our program includes over 20 videos discussing topics from nutrition to exercise, mental health, sleep, conversations to have with your partner as you approach birth and so much more. Each video has suggested reading, action steps, and handouts to help you dive deeper into the topic and apply what you've learned. Our weekly pregnancy emails guide you through the program each week of your pregnancy. They're the only weekly service that focuses on the nutrients you and your growing baby need and provides simple recipes using that unique nutrient. You also get a short checklist of things to do each week to help you prepare for baby and take care of yourself. We want to help you spend more time enjoying your pregnancy and less time searching for answers. Want answers and support to your burning pregnancy-related questions immediately from the comfort of your own home? Then you'll love our safe, non-judgmental community within the pregnancy program. It's my favorite corner of the internet, and many of our members agree. To find out more, visit wholemamasclub.com and click on Join Programs. 
And another thing you guys do that I love is you have a regularly scheduled date night on Thursdays, I believe. That is correct. And that's, yeah. How long have you been doing that? We have been doing it every Thursday since our now 13-year-old son was four weeks old. So the first time we went, clearly, we had a very small human being. It was the first time we'd created life. We put him in a tiny carrier, went to a very loud restaurant that had tablecloths, and hid him underneath a tablecloth, basically letting him cry <laughs> if he needed to, feeding him when he was... But, and here's the thing. It wasn't a romantic date. At four weeks old, you know, you're barely sleeping. This was just us getting into the muscle memory of being people who are still in pursuit of an exceptional relationship, and that just has become a habit. Now, I will say this, right? Like, our last two years of being together... And working together has provided the very, very best two years of our marriage and the very hardest two years of our marriage, period. And so there have been times in this commitment that we have to connecting on a Thursday night date night where we have loved each other more than we have liked each other, but we're still there, right? Like we have committed to uh, these dates. We've committed to intimacy as a thing that is important for us to stay connected We've committed to technology limits in terms of when we turn things off. We've we've committed to a whole bunch of things. To me, you have to start with what is the intention? What's the intended outcome that you're looking for in your relationship? If we say that we want to have an exceptional relationship, okay, that's where it starts. But we then had to define what our relationship values are and then how we're organizing our life and our calendar and the way that we are fueling each of us as individuals with self-care to show up best for the other in the pursuit of that exceptional relationship. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I love that everything that you're, everything that you're saying. I think sometimes we think that date nights have to be this elaborate experience or we're going to spend a whole lot of money, but have there been times where you just couldn't swing the babysitter on a Thursday and maybe you did something with her um, alone after the kids went to bed or like found a way to still make it happen? For like the first 10 years of us having yeah. humans, 100%. And here, and like, yeah, don't like, please don't hear date night and think, oh, we're going to a six course meal where they're wearing sure. tails. No, 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 no. Like <laughs> rarely. But us just even having the intention of, hey, we're going to go sit on the back patio and we're going to spend 90 minutes having a conversation. Like we went through a season, honestly, where we wanted to try and mix things up and we wrote down an activity on a popsicle stick and drew them the morning of our date night. And when I say activity, I mean like we're going to walk to the park and have a picnic. We're going to fly a kite. Like we're, we did, we went bowling, We, but it was a lot of times we would try to find something like that was a fun physical activity that we could go and do. This was not about money spending because for a long time we didn't have money to spend. It was truly just about like, how do we stop the regular programming in our life and Go do something that connects us as individuals. And there were plenty of times, by the way, where we would have the kids of somebody else come over to our house on one night while they went and had a date. And then when it was our date night, our kids would go to their house. And that kind of swapping became part of how we were able to accomplish getting away in an environment where we didn't have the funds to have a sitter come. And on your date nights, you're not talking about work stuff, are you? <laughs> oh, we're definitely. I mean, here's the thing: there, <laughs> there, there is so much. I mean, even at the, like from the very beginning, there were always things that would bleed from work sure. into into date. In the last two years, as we've done this work together, it is it would be 
not authentic to who we are to not talk about something yeah. that we get super excited about. So I would be sure. lying to you if I said like, oh, we get to date night and we stop talking about work. But we definitely try to not like have it be the only thing that we're talking about. It just kind of, you know, like it kind of depends. It's somewhat seasonal. There are plenty mm -hmm. of times where like we'll be on a date and she gets an idea, I get an idea and we start like doing a little bit of dreaming about where we're taking the company. And that is the most, like, that's the most fun date that we can have because, you know, we have a very bizarre work <laughs> that we get super excited about. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's good. I think even like just talking about kids, like trying to fill that conversation about something other than the kids or work, like really fostering that partnership again. So you've clearly done a lot of work. Um, you know, who you are today is different than who you were last week and a year ago and three years ago. And I really applaud you for for going to see, going to therapy and to really understand that therapy isn't just for broken people, which is something that you once thought. And, and I think it's something that blocks a lot of people from getting the help that they need. And I think this is especially true when it comes to, to men and, and to fathers and we can, we talked about it a little bit, but I just want to go back to, to speak to the, the new dads that are out there that may be listening or even to the moms that feel like their partners need a little bit more support. What can we do to really help them see what you saw that therapy isn't for broken people and kind of gently nudge them to go get the help if they're struggling? It's a, it's one of the most asked questions I get. And it yeah. is a tough question because I was nudged for some length of time and resisted the nudge. Yeah. So I want to be careful to prescribe nudging necessarily. My, <laughs> my very best advice, truly, right? The thing that was life-saving for me was Rachel's decision to pursue growing herself with tools that changed the way she was able to break through and think differently about blocks in her own life in a way that left a trail of breadcrumbs for me that when I became curious enough about how I might step out of my own way or change the trajectory of my life, she'd paved a bit of a path that I could follow. Mm -hmm. Her having gone to therapy herself, doing the work, having the breakthroughs, bringing those breakthroughs in conversation into our date nights in a way that allowed me to see the possibility of transformation that could happen on the couch of a stranger demystified something that I had this stigma around. And when I found myself stuck, struggling, unhappy with the idea of potentially continuing down this divergent path where she's growing and I'm dying, I had to ask why. Like I started my, like my journey onto the couch of a therapist truly began with the question of why. Why do mm -hmm. I keep doing this stuff that I I'm doing that's getting in my, you know, keeping me in my way, or why am I not showing up the way that you deserve or the kids deserve? And sitting on that couch was an opportunity for me to see some of the answers in the back of the book. Like I, I was given the gift of what in the stories of my past that were informing some of the things that I was believing that were not in fact true, either against the backdrop of masculinity or the backdrop of how some of my family of origin influenced what I believed to be possible or not, my fixed mindset and where it came from. Those aha moments came inside of therapy that in the blessing of that having worked, left me open and available to sitting in a conference, reading a book, listening to a podcast, and, uh, and more than anything, 
owning that if I was interested in becoming a better version of myself, I'd have to become comfortable acknowledging the struggle that I am going through. Because if I were to keep pretending like everything was fine, if I were to continue to curate the feed on social and keep this everything's great, trust me veneer, there was a 0% chance that I could actually get the help that would help me in my journey. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there are two significant things happening for you. It was like that that breaking point almost where you got the ultimatum that you needed to change. So something like really crashed in your face and said you need to stop and or things are going to happen. And then seeing the possibility, Rachel was that possibility uh, for you. And I, I think that's really well said. I don't think we've talked about this um, when it comes to helping our partners, or our loved ones get help is it's almost like modeling healthy eating. Like you wouldn't, you can't just go up to somebody and be like, Hey, put that Oreo down. That's not good for you and expect them to change. But if they see you eating healthy and your skin getting better and your energy getting better and your mood's more stable, they'll get curious and they'll want to know. And that's the most powerful way to make change is by seeing somebody and having them be your inspiration. We talk about this all the time of how moms need to put their own oxygen mask on first. Otherwise, you know, they're no good for anybody. So I think if you do see your partner struggling, it's maybe not a bad thing to ask them how they're doing and ask them if they need any help, but you've got to take care of yourself first and they'll see it eventually. Yeah, I was asked by Rachel if I was interested in going to a personal development conference with her and my eye roll, my like yeah. cynicism and skepticism of the snake oil that I believed flowed out of these things left me um, like like 100% not interested, but then also when she returned and was on fire, uh, resentful, to be honest, of some of her now pursuing something that was making her stronger in the face of me feeling stuck. And I want to say this for anyone who's listening, as you start to pursue pouring into yourself and you get any kind of resistance from a partner who is not yet ready, hasn't like had this inception game happen where it's become his idea to pursue growth himself. The resistance that you get is not, and I'm speaking from experience here, him not wanting you to be great. It is him or her, but it is your partner feeling like there is a possibility in your growth of being left behind. And so the insecurity that I had in watching her evolve and become and turn every day into a stronger, more confident version of this person that she knew she was placed on this planet to be triggered this insecurity that if she kept getting better and I didn't, that she would outgrow me. Now it did, to your point, lead to a very, very difficult conversation when I, not showing up for my life, she, absolutely thriving in hers, sat me on the bed after a vacation where things went sideways and said, hey, growth is one of, if not the most important commodity in my life. And I am going to pursue it every day. And I am going to do it whether you decide to do it or not. I hope you choose to, but I am becoming. And in my decision to become this version of who God created me to be, if you stay stuck, or let's be honest, if you continue to descend into this ditch of your own creation, we will be on paths that create distance between the two of us in a way that a year from now, we will not still be going on dates. Two years from now, we will not be making out. Three years from now, we will not be married. And the recognition of the truth in that conversation was the hardest and most important thing that happened in our relationship because it was the blessing of leverage. I now had a why that was more 
powerful than the excuses that I was making. My why was I now have to go and create massive change in my life so that I don't live into the possibility of drifting away from my wife and sharing custody of my kids and becoming an alcoholic that's out of, like all of the things, right? And I could paint this very, very dark picture of where it could go. Mm -hmm. And it was catalyzing. It was the thing that led me to the, you know, sitting on a couch of a a therapist and led me on this journey. And it, you know, man, it, it may have to come to that kind of conversation, but that conversation only came and was something I could receive because of having been witness to her deciding to continue to push for her own growth in a way that made me believe that growth was possible for me also. It's such a good point that you make about making sure that as you're experiencing growth, that you're letting the other person know that you're still there and available for them and you want them to come on this journey with you. Because I can see if one partner is really growing, there is fear from the other person that they're not going to need me anymore. Or maybe they're too good for me now that they lost weight or they have this earning potential. So it didn't really click in my head that like how important it is to have that reassurance as you're growing to the other person so that they can see, okay, yeah, they're growing, but I can grow with them and they want to still be with me. Yeah, it's interesting. We just came back from having been in Toronto at our conference and the thing I tell this audience of what the fear may be of a partner who is resistant to them even being in this audience is not of them coming, it's of them returning. And the fear is this idea of maybe being left behind. And my advice to them and my advice to you, listener, if you are in any way taking a journey that may create a little bit of distance between you and your partner, the thing I needed most and the thing that your partner may in fact need most is the reassurance that as you continue to become, that your love for them will still be there, that this is not something that they ought to be threatened by, but they should be encouraged by and celebrate because a fuller, bigger, more like fully utilizing your potential version of yourself coming into as a whole part to the partnership makes the whole of the relationship better. You know, like this is, we're not completing each other. There is no Jerry Maguire here. You are a whole individual. He or she is a whole individual. And as you can celebrate them coming into the relationship in a more whole way, it makes the relationship better. If you can find a way to articulate that, man, it will change the way that they have a reaction to your growth and maybe will change the way that they might see that growth as a thing that they ought to reach for as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they're already starting out if they are addicted to a substance or if they have low self-esteem or if they are doing some negative habit that you want them to grow to, there is some struggle there that's already happening. And then if they feel threatened, that's like another struggle that's not helping them grow. So that reassurance piece is key. And I'm so glad we touched on that. Now, I want to move into a topic that I, it was a chapter in your book. I've heard the story before, but it, it still gives me chills. But I think it's, it's really important to bring up because it's not something that we have talked about a lot on the podcast. And it's something that I want to get into. And that is the journey with foster parenting and adoption. And you had quite the journey with both of those things. And I remember reading in your book, like I wanted to like give you a hug and like tell you I'm so sorry for your journey. And you said like I did a podcast interview and I was like, no, don't be sorry because that needed to happen for us to be where we're at. And we wouldn't have Noah without that experience. And so, um, you know, it's probably it's too long of a story and too hard of a story to really go into on this podcast interview, but it's in the book. Um, But, you know, 
if you want to touch on some points of it, I'm totally open to it. I just really would love, you know, if you have any tips for families who are interested in adoption, um, if based on what you learned from that experience. I know it's a big question, but maybe some of the top three things that you learned from yeah. that experience. So the the chapter I write about it in was this idea, the lie, it's my job to keep them from experiencing problems or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, and I am sitting in Austin, Texas, having moved from Los Angeles, partnered now with my wife, not working at the Walt Disney Company, because of the benefit of what came out of the season of adoption. Like our entire life, my entire perspective about moving towards things that are hard came from this journey through adoption. So I want to start with, man, it has been a gift. It was the greatest blessing and the legacy of the rest of my life will be written starting here at 44, 45 years old for the rest of time, not what happened prior to it, in large part because of us having persevered into a space that was super, super hard and harder than I thought we could handle. So I want to start with the fact that it'll be hard, right? Adoption is a beautiful thing and um, fostering is a beautiful thing. But uh, our experience in particular was one that was fraught with hard things that we did not anticipate having never previously been inside of this space. We started in international adoption. It was going to go through Ethiopia. A couple at church had adopted there. That gave us confidence to do it. And we decided Let's lean into it. It didn't end up working out for a whole host of reasons, so we transitioned into foster care. The foster care system was a reflection of us trying to find where we could match our strengths with the needs of a community, and there was a community in our backyard that absolutely had those needs, and we were placed with babies uh, in the spring of 2016 that we knew were temporary, and because of having had temporary placement, got a phone call to take newborn twins in the summer, late summer of 2016. And we said, yes, we had 20 minutes to decide. It was unbelievably crazy taking on babies who had just been born, abandoned the hospital, drugs in their system, weaning them off, trying to take care of them sleeplessly through the night, working through the foster care system and what happens with your care worker and in some instances, biological family members. But we thought we were done with our adoption journey. It was fantastic. Here we are. As much as it was hard, it was the happiest I'd ever seen my wife. And about six weeks in, we got a phone call saying that the way that the adoptability of these twins had been represented to us was misrepresented. That, in fact, it was an emergency placement after all. And there was biological someone in the background that was fighting for custody and that they were going to have to leave our house. And it was the lowest point of um, of our of our marriage and of our family because, man, we had not really been through hard things, and that was a very, very hard thing. And in that season of like trying to figure out why, it was impossibly difficult to know like what the why was at that time. But I can see now so clearly that it was testing to see how strong we could be. Right? I, we had never previously had to endure something as a couple. And I now know our marriage is stronger for having survived it. Our kids had never really been put in the face of having to be resilient. And now I understand how resilient they can be, how modeling sadness to them can actually be a tool for them and not a liability. Uh, Our faith was something that was tested. It's easy to believe when things are going great. It was um, maybe the most I knew our faith existed when we could still believe, even though we did not understand why. And it ended up 
with us having a daughter in Noah, who now at three years old, we were there at birth. It was a private adoption that finished our journey, was exactly the way it was supposed to happen. But if you are a prospective adoptive parent, you know, find other people who have adopted. Number one, that's the first thing I would do so that they can give you the insight to how the different kinds of adoption have worked. There's closed and open adoption. There's private adoption. There's, there's a whole host of things, right? You can go through an agency, find someone who has been through it to talk to you about it. Foster care is something that we will fight for funding and loving on people who feel called into it for the rest of our entire life, because it unfortunately is... Uh, there's, it's built on the back of brokenness, right? Families having been separated from their children and is, you know, there are great people in, in many instances that are working in the system, but man, the system itself is also broken. And so there's tragedy and brokenness that exists in that system. And if you feel called into foster care, it truly ends up being an exercise of matching your strengths with the needs of both the children and the system that the children come inside of. And, and it's no joke. I mean, it is no joke. We did, a, we did a full podcast on our Rise Together podcast about our entire journey uh, that I would recommend because, man, we talk very, very candidly and honestly about it. It is a special person who feels called into, into foster care, and I'm so grateful for people who do. And there's organizations that are amazing that we support that are um, helping people because just supporting people who've decided to take on the work of foster care, oh, bless them. But um, it took us about five years of time to get to the end of our adoption journey, more paperwork than you know should be afforded any single human being in terms of number of trees required, and a lot of tears. But on the other side, we are stronger as a family. We are a whole and complete family. If you are in this journey and it feels like it's taking a long time, hear these words, your baby has a birthday, they will be in your home one day. You will come out the other side when you have persevered through this, what can sometimes feel like a slog, fully whole as a family, and the hard things will have given you a resilience and tough skin that will be applied to every other thing that happens in your life after you're outside of it. Yes, yes. In the story that you share about being at a restaurant when oh. you wanted to give up. <laughs> oh, my god! You want me to tell that story? Can you share it? Of course. All right. So we are at the like bottom of the ditch in, in, in this emotionally, we are broken in the backyard and Rachel has basically decided that she is done. She had been leading this journey of wanting to add a daughter to our family. And I was all 100% in on it, but it was a thing that she was leading and she was she was heartbroken over the twins leaving. I was heartbroken too, but it was it was very, very hard on her. And I said something that now feels like a very consistent with who I am, but at the time like, must have been somewhat divine. I said, look, our desire for a daughter did not go away when things got difficult. And the short-term feelings of pain are nothing compared to what long-term regret might feel like for not having completed our family. So we decide to finish our journey by going through private adoption, we set up a meeting to meet with a person who is going to help us in that process. Generally, it's an attorney. In this case, it, for us, it was. We go to meet this person, and the office happens to be right next to a restaurant that we had previously celebrated something at one time because it was a re, re, kind of ridiculous she-she-ish restaurant. 
And so after four hours of getting all of the information about what private adoption is and how it works, we are now coming down to have lunch. Now, before we went to this appointment, Rachel had asked me if I could, in an attempt for some closure with the twins, reach out to the biological person who had taken custody of them to ask if I could, if we could bring them clothes, bring them food, just do something to be present in some way, not trying to cross boundaries, but man, we just wanted to love on them. And so I had made the outreach. I had a polite but direct conversation with someone who represented a disinterest in us being involved in any way. So I held this information before we went to the meeting because I wanted to get to the meeting. And now we're after the meeting at our restaurant. It's a place that serves overpriced grilled cheese sandwiches. The tables are very close to each other. And about three or four minutes into a lovely lunch, Rachel asks behind a big old pair of sunglasses, hey, did you connect to see if we could bring food to the twins? And now I knew the answer. I had to tell her the answer. Nope, they're not interested in us participating in bringing them food or clothes. I'm so sorry. And once again, we were back at the bottom of this journey. And she said, I am done. And I thought, you know what? I am also done. This is the end. Even though we had a good meeting, even though this grilled cheese is delicious and expensive, we are done. And a hand from next to us slams on the table. And he says, hello, like startles us, big, huge tears. He says, look, I was adopted. My brother and I were adopted by our parents who previous to adopting us had failed adoptions. And if they, when faced with where you are sitting right now, had decided to not push through and continue the journey, I would not be here. I would not have graduated college. I wouldn't be married to my wife. I wouldn't be an executive in the music industry. I would not be here. And I am here. I'm going to cry. I'm, I am mm. here right now. I've been placed here to tell you to keep going because if you stop here, you will miss the opportunity to finish your family. We're like, what, what are you talking about? This is crazy. So I reach out my hand and I introduce myself and he says, I'm Noah. And Noah felt very appropriate as a name from a stranger sitting next to us in the midst of a flood to have been sent to us for obvious reasons, but also his name is the name that we have, you know, subsequently named our daughter, who is a miracle. Like the fact that we have this unbelievably, she is the, like a light in this world and is um, the answer to a whole string of prayers and the answer to a question of, will you continue to go when it gets hard uh, as posed by a stranger who became a friend and was at our house wrapping Christmas presents with us before Aww. she was even born. Yeah. Um, but when, when the question of will you continue to push through this when it gets hard was asked. And when the answer was yes, we ended up with a daughter. So keep going. Uh. That is the, that is the moral of the story. Keep going and look for the miracles that will show up along the way. Oh my gosh, Dave, that is such a beautiful story. And I'm so glad you had your happy ending with Noah. And now you get your tea time with her and all yes, those we do. sweet things. <laughs> all right, Dave. So just final question, what could the audience learn or what are they going to pick up by reading your book? What are you hoping that they take away? Well, there's two things. The first is we are living by the stories that we tell ourselves. And so you have to really understand whether the stories that you're telling are true and have application in your life or are a reflection of time gone by. 
uh, reflection of societal this or fear-based that, uh, I tend to say, look, if you can examine the capital T truths in your life and ask where those truths came from, and if the truth came from a credible source, does that source still have credibility in 2020? If the answer is no, be free, be free. You can now go and do you know something else or establish a new set of truths, but understanding that you are the product of the stories that you believe. This book is written through the lens of 20 stories I believe that did not serve me, and in making them unbelievable, I am free. So the first one is know the stories that you believe and question the credibility of the, of the storytellers that made you believe them. The second is if there is a thing that I learned in this journey, it's the connection between growth and fulfillment. Right? I was in a place where my being stuck was a reflection of my having had my rope as a boat to the dock. And I have come to fully believe that the only way that you can be fulfilled is if you are in a posture to grow. And the thing that growth requires is discomfort. The thing that growth requires is embracing and reframing the way you think about failure. So if you are in pursuit of being fulfilled, but you also like comfort, you are inevitably going to have to choose which one you value more. And I can tell you, as someone who was comfortable but unf unfulfilled, I will choose discomfort, running towards failure, the choppiness of the waters away from the dock every single time because it's in that disorienting, exhilarating discomfort that you can feel fulfilled. Yeah, and I love that your book breaks it. It's broken up into lies that you used to tell yourself, so very vulnerable stories, but then what helped you? So you're not just getting your stories, you're getting, okay, well, what do you actually do about it then? And it's very tangible. I love the takeaways. So, and you're doing a book tour, right? I am doing a book tour. I hit the road okay. two days from now. I am, I am going to be kind of everywhere. I got, I think 22 total cities. If, uh, if you live near a major city, I will be near you basically. And you're doing coaching. I am doing coaching. I'm <laughs> loving coaching. It's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, my wife had done coaching last year. And I've decided to do both a life coaching uh, course for 12 months and a, and a career coaching course, having been someone who built a career over 20 plus years. And, uh, and it's been just like an amazing thing, not just to teach, but to watch the kind of community that has you know, been created inside of our, our little group. Um, I teach the life coaching through the lens of someone who historically was skeptical, more fixed mindset and struggles with motivation. I teach the career course through the lens of someone who Spent 20 plus years in entertainment, started as a, a you know, a, a coordinator level, uh, administrative level person and finished, you know, on the Disney side as the president of distribution. And now I'm doing this work with my wife. So if you're interested, 100%, you should come in. There's zero risk. Like come in and try it out if you're, if you're interested at all. Very cool. We'll put those links in the show notes. And where else can we find you? Well, I hang out on social media a lot, which is weird. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Mr. Dave Hollis is my handle on Instagram, Dave Hollis on Facebook. All the stuff we do together at The Hollis Company is at thehollisco.com. Um, we have a company that exists simply to create tools that might afford people the opportunity to take control of and have better lives. So if you're interested in any of the things that we talked about, we probably have something that can help take the beginnings of what we've talked about to the next level. 
Yeah, I can't recommend you guys enough. I mean, I follow the Hollis company. I've followed you guys for a really long time. And just the amount that you put out and the quality of the information that you put out is incredible. Thank so you. thank you so much for all that you do. And thank you for being here on your launch day. That's so special. I am super, super excited. I'm grateful for you having me on. I'm, um, it's a surreal day. It's a, it is truly a surreal day. You work on a book for what um, I had never really considered. It's a long process. It's an emotional process. And here it is. This book has been born. I cannot wait for people Yay. to read it. So thank you so much for letting us talk about it today. Very good. All right. Well, we'll talk soon and good luck with everything on your book tour. Right on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. A quick note that the book tour Dave Hollis mentioned in the podcast is going to be postponed due to the growing concerns over COVID-19. We're sad to hear it's not happening right now, but respect that this decision had to be made to keep people safe. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help us out by taking a screenshot of yourself listening to the podcast and tagging us on social media at Whole Mamas Club. We would also love to see a quick review from you on iTunes. Let us know what you enjoyed about this podcast and help us grow our village. Please remember that the views and ideas presented on this podcast are for informational purposes only. All information presented on this podcast is for informational purposes and not intended to serve as a substitution for the consultation, diagnosis, and medical treatment of a healthcare provider. Consult with your healthcare provider before starting any diet, supplement regimen, or to determine the appropriateness of the information shared on this podcast, or if you have any questions regarding your treatment plan. Now go on, have a great day, and nourish and nurture yourself and your family.